So we are doing college visits with my daughter. And one of the things that struck me as we look at different colleges and universities was just how strange the culture of most colleges and universities really is. Uh, I'm looking at you, Texas A&M. Texas <laughs> yeah, you say whoop, but there's some weird stuff going on there. There really is, but you're not alone. You're in really good company. Every school, every university, as part of its student life, has strange habits and traditions and things that are just part of life at that university. For example, Baylor University. Baylor University has something that they call the tortilla toss. Did you know this? Where students will gather on this bridge over the Brazos River and they will toss tortillas out into the Brazos River. That's a real thing. At MIT, a school full of supposedly some of the smartest students in the world. At MIT, every year on drop day, which is the last day that you can drop classes, students gather on the top of buildings around campus and they drop pianos to the ground. That's a real thing. Doesn't sound very smart to me. <laughs> and then you've got NC State. This is my favorite one. They have what's called the Krispy Kreme run every year at NC State. A few thousand students gather in the quad, and then they run two and a half miles to the nearest Krispy Kreme. Each student tries to down a dozen Krispy Kremes, and then they run back to campus where they revisit all those Krispy Kremes. <laughs> University college life is crazy. It's weird. It's full of these insane little traditions. Now, if you're a fan of these colleges, if you went to these colleges, none of it seems strange to you. You take it all for granted. It's just part of being an Aggie or being a Baylor Bear or being a member of the Wolf Pack. It's all part of the deal. None of it is strange to you. I bring that up as a way of reminding you why we're doing this series that we're in. We're in a teaching series here at St. Mark. It's a bit of inside baseball, but necessary, where we're talking about, we're answering this question, why we do that. We're looking at our life together, in particular, our Sunday morning life together, our worship life, and answering the question, why do we do certain things that we do, certain things that other people might find strange? And what we're looking at today is, is something that if you're an outsider to the Christian faith, or if you're new to our particular tradition in the Christian faith, the things we're going to talk about today might, to you, seem to be the strangest of all. Today, we're going to talk about the words we repeat and the things we recite each and every week in church. When you come to church, each week so much is different. You know, the sermon's different, the songs are different, other things are different, but, but a lot of what we do stays the same. And you'll be with us for a couple of weeks, you'll start to notice that, that we always have a confession that we say, and then there's always a word of forgiveness, and then there's one of the ancient creeds that we recite, and then there's the Lord's Prayer that we always say. And then there are these little phrases that we do at the end of different things, like, like I'll do the reading and then I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and everybody around you will say, yeah, you've got it. Or at the end of the service, I'll say, go in peace and serve the Lord, and you'll say, thanks be to God, right? And, and at the start of the service, we'll make an invocation, a way to officially start our time of worship, and you'll see a bunch of people around you doing this. Which, which doesn't mean that we're Roman Catholic. What that means is it's a tradition passed on as a way of remembering your baptism. That's why people do it. As you start a service, it's a way of saying, I'm here because I'm a baptized, forgiven child of God. That's who I am. 
We have a ton of different things that, that we do each and every week that we repeat over and over and over again. And, and if you're not familiar with this place or this particular tradition in, in, in Christendom, these things might seem as strange to you as tossing a tortilla off a bridge. But, but these things have purpose, and these things should not be forsaken. They, they should not be looked down upon. There's a reason we keep them and we do them every single week. These are, I believe, life-giving elements in Christian worship, and today we're going to talk about them. Now, before we get into the details of what the benefits are of repeating these things that have been passed on to us, I just want to remind you of something that maybe you don't know. And that thing is this, that this service, this gathering like this, it does not belong to me. It's not mine. Yeah, I'm your pastor, but this service is not mine. It's not like my recital every week. This, this service is really, you could say, not even God's. Though he shows up in it and he gives us gifts in the middle of it and he speaks to us and he does stuff in our lives in and through it, I think what you have to say to be most accurate is that this service is yours. It belongs to the church. It's an expression of the gathered people of God. There's this word that church people like to use to describe the substance of a church service. It's an old word. The word is liturgy. You've probably heard it. Liturgy. That word is used to describe the substance or the parts and pieces of a particular worship service. All the different things that you do inside the service is the liturgy. And every church has a liturgy, even one that says we're not a liturgical church. Well, that's, that's a liturgy. If you show up and you do anything, that's your liturgy. Liturgy means the stuff inside the worship service. And what interesting thing about the word liturgy is that that English word is actually a mashup of two Greek words. The two Greek words are latos and ergos. Uh, latos means a gathering of people. Uh, it can also mean public, public or people. And ergos means work, something that you do. So what the word liturgy actually means, the etymology of that word is, it is the public working of the people. It means the work of the people. You see, this service is meant to be not my thing that I offer to you or that the rest of the professional Christians up front offer to you. It's meant to be something that we hand to you and you make yours. That's why we give you songs to sing and that's why there are words to repeat and phrases to say because it's not a work of this person, it's a work of the people. We are here to give you things, we being me and anybody else who's up front here, we are here to give you the opportunity to put your faith into expression, to give you words to say, prayers to pray, so that you have a work to offer. Not that good works do anything, but this is your space to express your faith. Last week, my family and I finally, we finally went and saw what is, I guess, people are saying one of the greatest movies ever made, Top Gun Maverick. We were late to the party, but we got there as quick as we could. We saw the movie, and it was great. Although, I have to say this, we went and saw it at one of those movie theaters where you, you have the giant lounger that you sit in, and then they bring food and beer, like, right to your chair, and they keep it, like, 20 degrees in there, so it's ice cold, your belly's full, you got a good drink, and you're laying back. They are begging you to fall asleep. That was the most expensive nap I've ever taken in my entire life. But I will say this, that of what I saw of the movie, it was, it was fantastic. Now, I mentioned that because, and I'm not trying to be harsh with this, I'm just trying to be honest. 
I think that, that many people, kind of unwillingly, unknowingly, uh, they show up to church the same way they might show up to a movie theater. They show up and, and they sit down and they're ready to watch other people worship their God. They sit down and they, they're ready to watch other people do the church thing and they're kind of passive recipients of it. But, but that's not how it's meant to be. This is not a passive, consumer-oriented event. This is, mean to be something that, this is meant to be something that you participate in. This is not a work of, of this person. This is a work of the people. And so if, if, if there are songs that you don't know how to sing or we never give you an opportunity to put your faith into, into expression, to give you words to say and prayers to pray, then we're not doing our job correctly because this is meant to be your expression. Now, when you, when you enter into this place engaged and active and ready to take what is handed to you and use it to express your faith, there are blessings and benefits to be found. And that's what I want to talk about now. And the first is this, that the things we repeat and recite they connect us to a much larger community. They, they remind us and they connect us that we are part of something much bigger, much older, much larger than just me or even just we in this space. You know, we've talked about this before, but one of the downsides to, to living in our, our modern and increasingly secular culture is that there is a rise of loneliness and isolation. Despite all of our connectedness, people are feeling lonely and anxious about their loneliness. Not only that, but people are feeling a sense of disconnection from a larger meaning and a larger purpose. There are a lot of people walking around feeling lonely because they don't know their identity. Questions of identity abound. And as a result, anxiety and loneliness are on the rise. But the advantage of coming into this place and you say these words that have been handed to us and you recite these creeds and you offer these prayers is that it connects you to something that is much, much bigger than just you. Now, I recognize that there are many with us today who probably didn't grow up in this particular Christian tradition. Maybe you grew up in a tradition where there were no creeds that you recited. There was no confession that you said. There were no rep repetitious moments. It was just songs that you sang or kind of sung and then a person who preached at you for like 40 minutes and then you went home. And I'm not making light of that at all, but you can see how there's a difference. One is very, very passive and, and, and what we feel called to do in order to be faithful is to be very, very active and engaged. But, but if that's the experience that you had, what I want to let you know, again, very gently, is that if you grew up in a more passive, recipient-oriented tradition, that you're actually in the minority within the Christian faith. Every week, some 2.4 billion people gather to worship Jesus in some way, shape, or form around the globe. 2.4 billion. Of them, roughly three-quarters do so as part of a tradition very similar to ours, where they are saying the same things. They're repeating some of the same phrases. They're articulating the same creeds. So when you walk into this place and you repeat those phrases or you respond the way you're supposed to with the words on the screen or you say these ancient creeds or you do this kind of thing, you are joining with billions of other people around the world. You are declaring to yourself and to the world, I am not alone. I am part of a global, diverse 
community of believers. That's who I am. That's my identity. But it also connects you to billions of people who have come before you. I want you to look at some words from the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 6, starting at verse 22. This is deep in the Old Testament. What's happening here in Numbers chapter 6 is the Lord is speaking to Moses, who's speaking to Aaron, who's going to speak to the church. Kind of confusing. Can you keep that straight? The Lord gives instructions to Moses to give instructions to Aaron. Aaron is the priest over Israel, priest over God's people. And so the Lord says to Moses to say to Aaron, offer this prayer on behalf of my people every time you gather. Listen to this. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Do those words, if you've been with us for a couple of weeks, do those words sound familiar? They do, don't they? They should sound very familiar. Those are the words that we repeat. It's called the ironic blessing, not ironic, but ironic as in Aaron. It was given to Aaron. It's the ironic blessing. Those are the words that we say at the end of every service when we cup our hands like this. I didn't write those words. I didn't make them up. The church, when it gathers, has been hearing and reciting those words for 3,500 some odd years since they were given to Moses. I know that a lot of what we do in here on Sunday is, is very new. We sing new songs, we use new technology, we tell bad but new jokes, like a lot of new stuff. But what you need to recognize is that a lot of the things, many of the things that we do, the things that repeat are really, really, really old. Like so old, you need a shovel and an archaeological dig to get to the bottom of them. They are that old. And so when you come into this place and you take part in those things and you let those words be your words, you're connected to a global community, but you are connected to all the people who have come before you. You are part of a global and eternal community of believers who confess these things. That is who you are. There are so many people walking around saying, is there anyone to whom I belong? What is my identity? Do I matter? Do I have any purpose? Am I part of anything that means something? And the answer when you walk into this place is yes. When these words are your words and you join with the others in the world and the ones who've come before, you are declaring to yourself and to the world, I am a part of something bigger. But there's more. <laughs> the reason we repeat these words and say these things is not just because it connects us, but because it forms us. It, it actually, when you take part in it, it molds you and shapes you in meaningful, palpable ways. Remember back to your freshman psychology class in college. In that class, you probably learned about Pavlov's dog. You remember Pavlov's dog? Uh, the, the big finding there was that animals, including human beings, can be shaped by stimuli. The things that are put in front of them can shape their impulses, their thoughts, and their desires. So the end result was that Pavlov's dog was trained that whenever a bell was rung, ding, he would start to salivate as though there was a treat in front of them, even though there was no treat. 
And that's because there was this repeated stimulus and response by the researchers that forged that response inside of the animal. Now, I hate to say it, but you and I and Pavlov's dog are not much different. That thing is called classical conditioning. And we're all subject to it in some way, shape, or form. It's not a good thing or a bad thing, it's just a thing. We are shaped by the things that we are repeatedly exposed to. Now, could someone use that for bad? Advertisers? Yes, they could. But it's, it's just how we're wired. Worship, corporate worship, when we gather like this, and we sing familiar songs, and we repeat certain phrases, and we, we, we say certain creeds together, that repetitive action is meant to form us and shape us. It is meant to shape how we think. It is meant to shape what our impulses are. It's meant to form our instincts. It's, we are meant to be molded by it. And if you don't like that idea, then you are painfully unaware of the fact that you're being molded and shaped by things all the time around you. It's just to whether or not you're intentional about it and whether or not you're aware of it. But you are always being molded and shaped. Always. Psalm 115. Psalm 115, verses 2 through 8. This psalm offers a sober reminder that we are always shaped by the things that we worship. And the things that we worship are the things that we repeatedly expose ourselves to and that we let have power and influence over our lives. And we give our time and our treasure and our talent to these things. Look at what Psalm 115 says. It says, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols, they being non-believers who worship created things as if it's ultimate, but their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They, their idols that they've forged with their own hands, they have mouths but cannot speak. So there's a face on these idols. They have eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear. Noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel. Feet but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Now here's the verse that really kind of is a shot to the heart. Those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. What you worship, you are shaped by. What you allow to have repeated influence in your life, you become like for good or for bad. And what worship is meant to do is to reform you through the worship of Jesus. Now you might say, well, Matt, I don't worship anyone or anything other than Jesus. To which I would lovingly respond, the heck you don't. <laughs> yes, you do. We all do all the time. All the time. Uh, if you spend every spare minute of your day watching Fox News, so much so that whenever the president comes on the screen, you get a twitch, that's worship. If you track baseball stats like crazy, or if you are already dying for fantasy football to start because you're going to spend an inordinate amount of time tracking stats and setting your lineup, you know what that is? That's worship. I'm not saying it's bad. I might need your help, but that's worship. If you spend so much time scrolling TikTok that you know all the songs, you know all the trends, you know all the moves, that's worship. That's worship. If you spend so much time taking your kids to travel games on travel leagues and sitting on the sidelines to the point where if it takes over Sunday, it doesn't really matter. If it takes over family time, it doesn't really matter. If it takes over time between you and your spouse, it doesn't really matter. 
I get it. Your kid's going to be a Hall of Famer. But you know what that is? That's worship. If you insist on seeing every Marvel movie the moment it opens and you have a tattoo of Baby Yoda on your forearm, (laughs) you might say, well, I'm not a very religious person. Like, (laughs) right, you're the most religious person I know. You religiously go to the movies and now you got it carved in your flesh. That is worship. That's worship. And the things that we worship, that we repeatedly expose ourselves to and allow to have influence over our lives, they have influence. They mold us and shape us. And so what Sunday morning is meant to be, you think of Sunday morning like this. Sunday morning is meant to be a time of reformation through repetition, where your impulses, your instincts, your heart, and your mind or desires are reformed around this truth, where where you set aside the other impulses and you allow the mold that you're in Monday through Saturday to be broken and be, and be reset in the truth of who Jesus is and how much he loves you and the fact that God made you and he has a plan for you and he's watching over you and he's with you every moment of every day, you let that reset and reform you through the repetition, through the singing of the songs, through the hearing of the word, through the saying of the things. It reforms you and recreates you. That's why this is important. But again, there's more. It connects us to something bigger. It reforms us and it rehabs us. But also, this this liturgy that we walk through, it promises to help us encounter God. It promises to help us encounter God. Listen to these words from the New Testament book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4. In fact... In light of what we're talking about, I'm going to ask you to read these with me out loud. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Would you humor me and read this out loud with me? The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of the Lord is living and active. These words that we say are not my creation. The words that we repeat, the creeds that we confess, they are not the the work of any one human being. Though humans have written them down, though humans have typed them on screens, these things flow from the words of God. His words are our words. And the scriptures promise that when we allow his words to become our words and the songs that we sing and the teaching that we sit under and the things we confess and repeat, that we have an encounter not just with words, but with the word of God made flesh, Jesus Christ. God's promise is that when we allow ourselves to be, to be under his words and to speak his words, we encounter him in and through his word. You may not know this, but, but each and every week when, we, when we corporately confess our sins and our struggles and, and then the pastor stands up here and the pastor says, your sins are forgiven, that pastor is speaking the word of God to you. And the intention is not just that you would hear from my voice that your, your sins are forgiven, but that you would hear the very voice of God telling you, I see you, I see it all, I know, and you are forgiven. When, when we have this meal and we, we receive bread and wine, it's not just bread and wine, it's 
the body and blood of Jesus Christ because the promises and the word of God has been spoken. And God tells us what this meal is. And so we receive not just a devotional snack. What we receive is what Jesus says. He says, this is my body. Take and eat. This is my blood. Take and drink. That's what we receive by the power of God's promise and his word. When you're standing here and, and I say, this is the word of the Lord, and you hear everybody else say, thanks be, <laughs> thanks be to God. When you hear their voices in the pews next to you, it's not just the person in the pew whose voice you hear. The scriptures tell us that the church is the body of Christ. And so when you hear those voices around you saying the Lord's Prayer or saying thanks be to God or saying the, and confessing the creed, whose voice are you hearing all around you? You are hearing the very voice of Jesus who says the church is his body. Not all that long ago, I was teaching a class. We were walking through the Gospels, the life of Jesus. And somebody said to me, Pastor Matt, I, I don't know how people, I don't know how people rejected Jesus. I mean, if he were teaching and, and doing miracles right in front of me, I would not have been one of the people to just walk away. To which I very politely had to say, uh, you, you probably would have been. I mean, I mean most people did. I mean, think about it. Jesus lived, he died, he rose. He was seen, history tells us, by 500-some people saw the resurrected Jesus. And then he ascended publicly. More people saw him ascend to the right hand of God the Father, where he's seated right now. And yet, the book of Acts tells us that when the church begins, most of those people have walked away, and the church consists of about 120 people. Those are the only ones who still believed, even after seeing all the things that they saw. The human capacity to ignore the miraculous power and presence of God knows no bounds, myself and present company included. And I'm mindful of that every time someone comes to me and they'll say something like, oh, pastor, I wish I could just hear God's voice, or I wish I could... Could, could experience him in some kind of physical, tangible way. I wish I could hear him say what he thinks about me. I wish I could have this personal experience with the presence of God. And everything in me wants to look at them and just kind of put my hands on their shoulders and say, then why don't you come to church more? I'm not saying that for me. I'm saying that because this is where God has promised to be. And when you're here and his word is spoken and it's on our lips and it's in the air, it is an encounter with God that is yours to receive because it is him speaking. It is him encouraging. It is him drawing you here. It is him feeding you. It is him telling you you're forgiven. It is him leading you and correcting you and giving you hope in Jesus. It is him doing all of it. It is an encounter with Jesus. An encounter with Jesus. Now the question is, what do you do with all that? With the fact that you're connected to something bigger, with the fact that you are formed, with the fact that you get an encounter with the divine. Well, I think this is what you do. I think you show up ready to be formed ready to be shaped by this community, by these words, by this repetition, and by this encounter with God. 
So often we come to church and people will say, and I know what they mean, and they mean well, they'll say, I need to get filled up. No, you don't. You're already full. You come to this place full of all these other influences that are molding and shaping you. You come through these doors, you know what you need? You need to be emptied. You need to be emptied. And that's part of what the confession is, and that's part of what the creeds are. It's a way of emptying and saying, I renounce all the other things that I've let form my life. I need to be emptied, refilled, and reformed. Rather than come to church saying, I need to be filled, come to church and say, I need to be fixed. I need to be formed. I need to be shaped by this place and these words and this process and these people and these songs and this tradition that I'm a part of. I need to be formed by it all. I'll close with this. I've been watching this TV show over the last week called Who Do You Think You Are? It's on PBS, and it's also been on ABC uh, for a couple of seasons. And, and what they do in this show, if you've not seen it, is they take celebrities and they, they trace their ancestry. They look at like their DNA and then public records, and they show them their, their extended family tree. And it is, it's fascinating. So, so, for example, Zachary Levi. Remember Chuck, that TV show Chuck? Zachary Levi discovered that one of his great-great-great-great-grandmothers was tried as a witch in Salem. Bill Hader, the comedian from Saturday Night Live, he discovered that his 40th great-grandfather was Charlemagne. If you know your history, you know that Charlemagne was the first Holy Roman Emperor, one of the most pivotal figures in human history. They also discovered that Bill Maher, the the comedian and political pundit, he is cousins with Bill O'Reilly. It's true. This show is fascinating. And what's, and what's so moving about it to me is that it's moving for them. They sit at a table and they flip through these pages and they discover who they are. There's this power in discovering what tribe you, know, you belong to, like who your people are, what your history is, what your lineage is. And whether it's good or it's bad, you, you know that you belong to something so much bigger and it's moving to every single one of them. And they leave that process forever changed. Now, I was watching that show this week with this message in mind. And so I made a connection and I said, you know, that, that's kind of the opportunity that's in front of us each Sunday when we walk into this place. You walk into this place each Sunday and your, your mind and your heart have been harassed by all these other influences. Culture is telling you that, that unless you accomplish this or unless you believe this or you think this, that you've not accomplished enough or you're, 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 the, you're a bad person. Your own heart and mind is telling you that, that you need to do more and try more and you're fatigued. And all these influences in the world are telling you that, that this one particular thing about you needs to be the most important thing. You're liberal or you're conservative. You're married or you're single or you're, you're an Aggie or you're a Baylor bear or you're a Wolverine. And they tell you whatever that one thing is, it needs to be the most important thing in your life. That's who you are. But when you come into this place, here's what you discover. You get to... You get to experience the rhythm and the repetition of this ancient but true faith. And you get to remind yourself and declare to the world, I know who I am. I know who I am. You get to be formed in it and shaped by it. And you get to say to yourself and to the world, I belong to something so much bigger. I'm becoming someone beautiful. And I belong to a God 
who loves me enough to see me and to draw me here and to give praises for me to sing and to feed me at his table and to send his son, Jesus Christ, to live and to die for me. That is who I am. So come into this place despite the fact that so many of the things that we do are so strange to the non-Christian eye. I get it. But these strange things are divine things and come ready to be shaped and formed and to be a part of something bigger and to experience the presence of God through these things. Amen. Amen.